Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. And we are in a series that we've called Outdated. And so we've been going through the book of Ephesians for over a year. And we hit this section at the end of chapter five, the beginning of chapter six, that deals with relationships, a lot of just the common relationships in our life. And so we called this series Outdated because uh, I, we submit that if you were to try to live out all of the relationships in your life the way the Bible says to live them out, that the world would call that outdated. Uh, the, the ways that the Bible says to deal with relationships are not the way that our culture says to deal with relationships. And so we're opening up the word of God and just taking a look at what that means. Now, uh, lots of fun things going on. You know, in the course of our church, I thought we were gonna get like a kind of a slow Christmas season, but that's just not the way that it has ended up working out. Uh, we, if, you saw, if you smelled all the delicious smoke on your way in, that's because we have a potluck right after this service. And then we're headed into our annual business meeting, which is everybody's favorite time. Yes? Yeah, we all love that. Uh, we're really just talking about the future of the church. Um, we, we love to do that. And we call it a business meeting. We really just want to talk about where we think God is leading us as a church. And then uh, next Saturday, we have our uh, marriage conference. Um, we actually just had to kind of switch up the format of that because um, we had some unexpected circumstances. But uh, that is happening in just under a week. And then we're headed into our Christmas series. Boy, that came fast. Uh, Feels like we're, I was just dealing with the heat of summer and now we're into Christmas. Okay, uh, we're going to cover Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 today, and then we're going to cover it again next week. And this is on a section of scripture around uh, kids and around parenting. And what we're going to do is this week, we're going to cover this text from the context of children that you're raising within your home, whether that's kids or grandkids. And then next week, we're going to cover some of these same responsibilities around discipleship for those of you that have adult children outside of the house or grandkids outside of the house. And so uh, we're going to look at that from two generational perspectives. And that's because uh, one of the things that we hold a very high value here in this church is not simply just raising the next generation, but being a cross-generational church that represents at least five or six generations here, and, and we value doing that together even though it's hard. And what that means is that we don't have separate types of service, and we don't have something where we send off the teenagers on Sunday morning so that they do their little pocket, and we send off uh, seniors into one service so that they can do a traditional service, and then we, send, we don't split into silos, although that is something that uh, you'll see sometimes in different formats of different local churches. We value the diversity of those generations. We know that that's hard. We know that without the Bible kind of pulling us toward it, we would all split into the comfortable areas of people that are like us. That's just what we do. It's human nature. And so if we weren't very intentional about it, we would find ourselves in very short order kind of siloing into little groups of people that looked like us and thought like us and smelt like us and voted like us and everything else. I mean, that's just what we do. Uh, and instead, we want to do life together across all these generations. We believe there is high value in older generations pulling up, discipling, mentoring, and caring for the future generations. And so uh, we're going to look at the, this scripture from two separate perspectives, one this week, one next week. And um, we're going to get started with Ephesians 6, verse 1. And I just want to say this about parenting. Um, it's really hard. Man, it is really hard. I've been in the hospital uh, five times waiting for a baby. And all, every time you're in the hospital and uh, you, you, they give you this little screamy lump, they will give you formula and bottles and blankets, uh, sometimes a car seat. They'll definitely give you a bill. <laughs> they don't give you an instruction manual. And these things require a great deal of care, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. And so I want to look at what the Bible has to say about it. We're going to read this. Um, here, here is what we are going to deal with today, though. This will be very different the next week. We're going to deal with this very first word of Ephesians 6.1. It says, children, and you think, uh, I don't, you know, that seems like a very common word. In, in Greek, there's multiple words for this that can be uh, translated differently. And so we see children, in Greek, that's techna, and that word actually means kids that would be of an age that they would live under your roof and be under your authority. And so we're actually, this is a very specific word that means kids that you are responsible for because they live under your 
house or your roof or your authority as a mother and father. Uh, and the Bible has a lot to say about that authority and how that authority needs to be stewarded and what your responsibility looks like. And so what the Bible is going to say, and we're going to look at this today, is that when kids are under your roof, when they are under your authority, they need to obey and honor you. And if they don't like that, they need to move out and get a job. Okay, the Bible didn't say that part. I added that part. I tell my kids that all the time. You don't like it the way it is. It's, I have no problem with that. When you become an adult, go get a job, go pay rent, and then you'll figure it out. And then you'll have the liberty to do whatever you want to do. But in, as long as you're under this roof, you're under my authority because I'm responsible for you and I have to answer for you. And so we're going to look at that. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. It says this, children, or techna, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is Right? Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When you see obey your parents in the Lord, it does not mean obey your parents only when they say something from the Bible. It means that obeying your parents is actually worship to God. It's pleasing to God. In fact, we see the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, say the same thing in his letter to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3.20, where he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. That is, uh, literally means in Greek, Everything. That, that can be tough if you're growing up in a household and you're like, my parents are always right. That's not what it means. It means you obey them even if they're not always right. We're going to get to that. Now, uh, it matters a lot to talk about this context of, of kids under your authority and, and when they live at your, your, in, under your roof and under your authority because back in, in the days of the, the first century, we, we didn't really have a concept of adolescence. I don't know if you, this is a, actually a fairly modern phenomenon. Even the term adolescence is actually a pretty new term. We used to have child, adult. Child, adult. There was no adolescence. Adolescence is this thing that we're trying to do over the course of the last 100 years or so, maybe even just the last 70 years, where you're not really an adult, but you kind of want to be an adult. At least you want the freedom of an adult. You kind of look like an adult. You definitely smell like an adult. But you don't want the responsibilities of an adult. And we're calling this adolescent. And it actually is this weird cultural term that allows you to kind of put, put your foot sort of in the water of being an adult but not really an adult. And it's weird because this didn't occur in the first century. You were a kid and then all of a sudden we married you off. Like you were 13, 14 years old, we married you off. I got two goats for you. I mean, it was a good deal. But there was no in-between. You went from being a child to being an adult and that was it. But now all of a sudden we have this sort of adolescence thing and we're trying to deal with these teens. Anyone have teens? Oh my Lord. And, and even children that continue to live under our house and under authority uh, past the teenage years, in fact, we are setting new records in 2022. We have more children living with their parents longer than we ever have in the history of, of, of social sciences, of, of having recorded this. In, in 2022, 58% of young adults are living at home with their parents. 58%. Now, it's not all because they, don't, they just don't want to go out and be responsible. So some of this has to do with the economy. It has to do with the job market. It has to do with rent. Y'all, have you seen rent? Holy cow. I don't mean the movie. I mean, it is terrible right now. Like, like renting a, a place is hard. And so um, it is. It's difficult at this point to kind of launch them. That was my way of launching them out of the nest and getting kids going, it's, it's hard. And so we're in this weird phenomenon. We have these kids at home in their 20s and we're trying to figure out how do we uh, obediently follow the Bible when it comes to our children. So um, listen, let me just tell you what the Bible says. As long as you're under your parents' roof, you're under their authority, it doesn't give an age. And therefore, if you're under your parents' roof, here's what the Bible's gonna say to you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And it literally means obey. Uh, there are actually a lot of scriptures on this all throughout the Bible. So this is not just the Apostle Paul kind of saying this right here. If you go back and you look at Mosaic Law and you look at the early Levitical Law and you look at just Moses as he's writing this stuff down, he's going to very consistently say the same thing. In Deuteronomy 5.16, he's going to say, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord you, your God commanded you. And this is the verse that's being quoted by Paul. That your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
So this idea that you're to honor and respect your parents and not attack or curse them is then by Moses repeated in Exodus 20, 12, Exodus 21, 15, Exodus 21, 17, Leviticus 21, 17, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 20. Like again and again and again, Moses is gonna say the same thing. Obey your parents, honor them. Don't attack them, don't curse them, honor them. And then Solomon's gonna come along, the wisest man that ever lived according to the Bible, and he's gonna say this in Proverbs 23, 22. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. And Solomon consistently is going to say, listen to your parents, don't rob them, curse them, mock them, so on and so forth. Proverbs 23, 22, 28, 24, 30, 11, 30, 17, again and again and again, obey your parents, listen to your parents, honor your parents. And if you don't believe those old fuddy-duddies, Jesus is going to come along, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And he's going to say in Matthew 15, 4 through 6, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And he's going to say, Jesus is going to say, honor for your parents, provide for your parents, don't neglect your parents. He's going to say that in not just Matthew 15, but in Mark 7, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 14. Now, all of these scriptures from Moses all the way through Jesus and then Apostle Paul, which we're reading today, they're talking about honoring your parents, obeying your parents. Uh, I just want you to hear this Parents, you know what's not in here? It doesn't say, listen to your Sunday school teachers. It doesn't say, listen to your youth leaders. Because the primary discipler and instructor of your children is not some youth department. It's not some Sunday school. It's not some kids program. It's not your public school. It's you. The Bible is going to instruct all of the children to honor and listen to and obey their parents because it's going to put all of the responsibility for their spiritual development and their discipleship on you, not on some program somewhere else, on you. Now, I want to walk through real quickly the significance of parenting, the significance of parenting so that we have an understanding of not only what the Bible says about it, but just statistically and practically this idea of parenting real quickly before we break down what the Bible is saying here in Ephesians 6, 4. There are a lot of statistics about how important it is for you as a parent to raise your child well, a lot. In fact, um, there's no end to the, the amount of statistics that talk about the, what the stability of the home, what a, what a single parent versus dual parent home will look like, what a broken home versus uh, people that say married, uh, what that will look like over time. There are a lot of statistics about this, but I came across an article in Business Insider. That's where everyone goes for biblical news, right? <laughs> Business Insider? No? Nobody? Okay. Business Insider is just looking at really, really successful people. According to them, not, not, not the Bible, not a Christian news, not Christianity today, Business Insider looked at the most successful people, and then it looked at what did they have in common in their childhood. They came up with 25 things. I want you to, I want to read you what Business Insider says all of these people had in common. Number one, the, the kids, people that were, that were that are really successful as kids, when they were kids, they were number one, forced to do chores. Oh, there's some kids just like, I can't believe you said this. My parents are never gonna let me live it down. They're forced to do chores. Number two, they were taught social skills. Number three, their parents had high expectations. Number four, the family had healthy relationships. The mom, the dad, the kids had healthy relationships. Their parents valued effort over avoiding failure. Their parents tended to be more authoritarian and less permissive. Their parents taught them grit. Their parents faced conflict well, had healthy conflict in their life. Their parents let them fail. They were taught self-control. They were allowed to make decisions and they were not allowed to watch too much TV. I didn't make this up. This is in Business Insiders. The kids are just squirming. And lastly, they were paid attention to by their parents. Business Insider, y'all, not the Bible. But if that sounds familiar, you're going to hear a lot of that in scripture as well. Do you know that a stable home for a child is the single largest predictor of financial and professional success of a child later in life? The biggest, the number one correlation to someone being successful later in life is a stable home. 
In the United States, if you want to fix poverty, you fix the problem at home. That's not a political statement. I'm just telling you what the, what the statistics say, what our economy says. If you want to fix it, poverty, you fix home life for that child so they can be raised in stability and they will be successful. The, our economy and our statistics and the secular world even has a lot to say about the importance of the home, even though we don't actually want to talk about the importance of the home. Now, practically, practically, what, what are we trying to do as parents? Do you have, here's my question for you. Do, do you have a parenting philosophy? Do you have a parenting goal? Uh, my wife and I taught a, a parenting seminar like a, a summer ago, I think. We were doing BBS and we did all these little adult seminars. We did one for parenting. And I asked people, do you have a parenting philosophy? Do you have a goal in mind? Because listen, if you don't know what you're aiming for, if you don't know what the goal is, if you don't know, if you're playing in a competitive event like football or baseball and you don't know how to score points, boy, it's going to look really weird. <laughs> Why'd that guy keep running away with the ball? Uh, he's scoring points and you haven't scored any. Uh, you need a parenting philosophy. You need a goal here. My goal, my goal is, is really all tied to how my kids end up as adults, not how they feel about me as kids. My goal is that my kids really appreciate my parenting at 28, not at four or 14. I want to raise independent, competent, responsible adults that love Jesus. Independent, competent, responsible adults who love Jesus. That's my goal. What's your goal? Do you even have a goal? Have you talked? Have mom and dad talked about what the goal is? I remember Chris Rock saying that his entire goal of raising a daughter was that she didn't end up a stripper. That was his goal. He's like, keep the baby off the pole. And I was like, listen, that's setting the bar awfully low. I agree. Let's not do that. But could we raise the bar a little bit higher? What's your goal? What are you trying to raise? Are you trying to raise a really good business person? Are you trying to raise someone who will be wealthy? Are you trying to raise somebody who's going to be really great at sports? Man, my entire goal is that the little Johnny's going to be in Major League Baseball. What are you trying to raise? What's the goal? Why are you doing all the work? You're like, Pastor, I'm just trying to survive till Monday. <laughs> What's the goal? You need a goal. You need a philosophy. Here's what the Bible will say about raising children, both the responsibility of it and the methodology of it. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says this. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The Bible is saying there is a concept of raising children that is about setting them on the right path or moving them in the right direction, creating a momentum for their life in the right direction. And when they're adults, it will benefit them. And we know statistically that that is absolutely true, that largely the biggest predictor of success in your life is how you were raised, what happened at home. The Bible says this. Now, how important is it biblically to raise children well? Well, let me just tell you this. If you turn to Titus 1, 6 or 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 7, what you're going to find is that the prerequisite for any church leadership office is that you're raising children well. In fact, if you're not raising children well, according to the Bible, you are disqualified from a church office. That's how important it is. And what Paul will say is, listen, how do you, why would we depend on you to lead the church well if you can't lead your home well? Oh, got quiet, that's weird. Um, why would we depend on you to lead the church well if you can't even lead in your home? Secondly, your first ministry, your first priority is your family. Church office, serving in a church, work, all those other things are secondary to the responsibility you have to your family. They are the priority. The Bible puts a great deal of weight of the responsibility of raising children, the impact of it, the importance of it on parents raising their kids. Your family comes first. If other things are not going well in your life, get rid of them because your family comes first. It is your relationship with God, then your relationship with your spouse, then your relationship with your kids. In that order, it's a qualification and it's a priority. Now, we turn to Ephesians 6, 4. We're going to hear the instructions for parents. This is what we're supposed to do. It says this, fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. There are four really common ways that we see parents provoke their children to anger. The first is this, unreasonableness. Unreasonableness. Just unreasonable expectations, being unreasonable with them. The Bible calls us to do the exact opposite. In fact, uh, reasonableness or gentleness, which are often used as synonyms in the Bible, is both a fruit of the Spirit. And in Philippians 4, 5, it says, you as a believer should be known for, famous for, infamous, notorious for your gentleness, for your reasonableness. Now, the problem is that uh, that sounds great, and it's been true. It's been in the Bible all the way since Jesus came, and Paul's writing these letters. But we live in a culture where you only become famous if you're unreasonable. If you got the hottest take, the most controversial opinion, then, then we're paying attention to you. That's ridiculous. Don't be unreasonable as you raise your children. The Bible says that's a way of provoking them to anger. Secondly, don't be overly critical. Don't be, don't, don't be a fault finder. You're just always pointing out the things that they're not doing well. Don't be overly critical. Be filled with grace because you serve a king that is full of grace and has extended a lot to you. Don't be unreasonable. Don't be fault finding. Third, don't neglect them. The Bible has a lot of things to say about a father or a mother that neglect their family. It is very weighty and very heavy about the consequences of those that would neglect their family. Don't be unreasonable. Don't be fault finding. Don't neglect. And lastly, don't be inconsistent. You pick a standard and you stick with it. We'll talk about inconsistency of standards in, in just a second. Now, those are the four ways that we're just kind of dialing out of ways to provoke your children to anger. That's the negative imperative. That's what not to do. Don't provoke them to anger. Now, what should we do? Well, the first thing is this. It says, but bring them up in. Now, bring them up in just sounds like normal instructions, unless you could read it in Greek. And in Greek, there's actually some, some, some really cautious sort of tender words that are, that are inferred here in this phrase, bring them up in. Uh, a translation, in fact, in some translations, it'll actually say, nurture them in, or nourish them in. So there's this idea in this phrase of bring them up in that there, there is a, a very gentle, uh, sensitive way that you're, you're doing this with a great deal of value, a great deal of concern over their well-being. So there's a tone and a perspective that's being communicated in this phrase, bring them up in, that you would hold this in high regard. Bring them up in what? Two things, two things. In the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And I'm going to look at those two today. We're going to start with discipline. What is the discipline of the Lord? Now, you, you've probably heard the verse. I certainly heard this verse a lot growing up, especially when I was going to get spanked. Um, it's Proverbs 13, 24. And it says, whoever spares the rod hates the son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Anyone ever heard that one? Might as well have tattooed that on my buttock. <laughs> spare the rod, spoil the child. It means I'm getting beat again. I deserved all of them, y'all. I got away with way too much. Okay. <laughs> I want you to hear something different about discipline. I want you to hear Proverbs 3, 12. I think this is way more important than simply talking about uh, spoiling a child, although that is important. But, but listen to Proverbs 3, 12. For the Lord reproves or corrects. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Who does, who does the father, who does the Lord correct? Only those he loves. And here in Hebrews 12, 6, it says something very similar. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What the Bible says is that you only discipline kids you love. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say this. If you don't discipline your child, you don't actually love them. I'm going to say that again. The Bible would say, if you are not willing to discipline your child, you don't actually love them. Not disciplining your child is selfishness. Now, why would it say that? Because disciplining is hard. Is disciplining not hard? Does anyone ever want to be the bad guy? I don't want to be the bad guy. But, but... You are not called to be your child's friend. You're called to be their steward, their parent, not their friend. They don't have to like you. They, they don't. You don't want to provoke them to anger, but, but your job is not to be their buddy. Y'all ain't supposed to be homies. You're their parent. 
And the Bible's telling you, listen, to disregard the discipline of your child is actually to not love them. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is love. God disciplines us. If, if you have given your life over to Christ, if you're, if you're a Christ follower, then that means that Jesus already took all of the punishment for your sin on the cross. So, so when, you, when you mess up, even now, even tomorrow, even next week, even next year, when you mess up, God's not gonna run over there and punish you because Jesus paid for that one time on the cross for all time, past, present, and future. So then when something happens to you as a Christian, you don't be like, God's punishing me. No, 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 God doesn't, God's already, Jesus is taking care of that. God is disciplining you, he's reproving you, he's correcting you toward holiness because he loves you. That's what the Bible says. When we, when we discipline our children is because we love them because it's our responsibility to show them love through discipline. One day, if you have kids, one day you will stand before God and you will answer to God for how you stewarded your children. Whenever I'm just tired, I really don't want to be the bad guy, and I really don't want to discipline my kids, I'm trying to remember that right there. Someday I'm going to stand before Jesus, and I'm going to answer to him how well I disciplined and led my children. And it matters, because discipline creates the boundaries of right living. Discipline is incredibly important. Healthy, firm boundaries create stability in your child's life. Now, I know that sounds like just... So conservative in 2022. I mean, because we're wild in 22. Like, guys, we're so wild right now. You know, like, I'm telling you, create consistent boundaries because the Bible says so, and the world's telling you, like, let your eight-year-old pick their gender. And I'm like, yo, my kids can barely dress themselves. My nine-year-old has been in jammies for three days. He ain't picking nothing. I'm not sure I'll let him pick the flavor of bubblegum he chews. I don't even let them pick what they'd eat or they'd eat the, I mean, like, come on. No, no, I create healthy boundaries. It's my responsibility. And I, are there times that I don't want to be the best? Absolutely. Listen, if you're, if you're in a two-parent home, if you have, you have the benefit of a two-parent home, there are going to be times where one of you is just utterly frustrated, you're utterly mad, you're just fed up with your kids. Like, I wish that every mom had a little red light on the back of their head and 10 seconds before we hit DEFCON 4, it started going off. <laughs> And you knew you had 10 seconds to run as fast as you could away. <laughs> and kids are like diving under couches. And, and, I, and like I've, I've been married long enough and had kids long enough now that I can see when it's coming, even though there's no red light. It's like an imaginary red light. And I can see it going off. And I look at my kids and I'm like. <laughs> and they're learning. They're like, when dad does that, oh, he sees something. Like, I don't know why they don't see it yet, but I see it coming. <laughs> and my wife will look at me like, you deal with them. And I'm like, okay. Everyone needs to go to their room right now. Everyone needs to go to their room. Everybody just go to your room. Just separate. I was like, there's violence coming, kids. You need to run. You don't understand. I'm trying to save your life. <laughs> discipline is never in anger. I want you to hear this, okay? You, you never discipline your kid when you're angry. And, and in the benefit of a, of a two-parent home, if one of you has just kind of lost it, then, then that's where the other one gets to take over. And if you're both angry or you're just not in a scenario where you can do that, then I'm like, listen, go to your room because right now you don't want to deal with me because if I discipline you right now, you don't even want to know what would happen because I'd have you like in the gulag somewhere chipping away at stones. Just, just go sit in your room and let me cool off and let me pray about it so that I can be reasonable when I discipline you. And then we're going to talk about why you get disciplined and what, what that looks like. And I'm going to explain it. My dad used to sit down and he'd explain it. Then he'd whoop my butt and then he'd pray with me. <laughs> I don't want to pray right now. It hurts. He had a cheese board <laughs> that he got for Christmas and it said cheese on it. And so the joke was like, every time we get a spanking, he'd be like, say cheese. I'm like, this is a terrible joke. I'm going to get spanked again. Sorry, memories. I deserved them all. <laughs> Back in the 60s and 70s, um, we started this like this hippie movement of like, everything's free, man. You know, like everything's cool. Like we don't need rules. I, that's how they talked in the 60s. I've seen a movie. <laughs> and so they wrote these, these books about parenting that were like, let's not be so restrictive about our kids and have all these terrible rules. Like, let's just let them pick all their own stuff. 
And so we started doing really stupid stuff as a culture. So one of the things we did is we, someone decided, I don't know who decided this, man. Someone decided fences around schools are terribly repressive. And we tore all these fences down, thinking that if we tore the fences down around like all the playgrounds and all the schools, that suddenly our kids would be like totally free, man. Uh, again, don't quote me. <clears throat> so we did. We tore, we tore it down. You know what happened? All of the kids in all these playgrounds and all these schoolyards all around the country started to, 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 to huddle and play only in the, in the middle of the schoolyard because they wouldn't go out against the edges because they didn't know how far was safe enough and, and where to go. And what we actually realized is when you remove healthy boundaries, no one knows exactly where the boundary is, so they just huddle in the middle. So instead of becoming more free and liberated by tearing down the boundaries, Tearing down the boundaries actually created a restriction and a problem where people didn't know where the boundary was and, and lived in a more restrictive and fearful nature. Because that's what healthy boundaries do. So we put the fences back up. That's your tax dollars at work. Uh, we put the fences back up and then the kids would go to the edge because they knew what was safe. When you create discipline and healthy standards in, in your family and for your kids, they know where the boundaries are. They know this is okay and this isn't okay. And every kid will test you, amen? Every kid will test the boundary. They're like raptors testing the fence. They're trying to find the weak spots. And every single one of my kids at some point, and usually early, two, three, four years old, has, has decided we were going to have a little war of wills. Who's going to win? Let me tell you right now, I will win. I've won them all. You know why? Because that's my responsibility. There's no way we're letting a kid rule themselves and actually say we care about what the Bible says. I win all of those. And if it was a war of wills, I sat at that table and you ate that broccoli <laughs> or whatever it was. I, I, I had to set the standard. I had to be the authority or else I didn't really believe what the Bible says because you only believe the parts of the Bible that you live. The rest of it's just lip service. We create these healthy boundaries. We discipline in loving ways, not in anger, not in punishment. Because that's our job. That's what raising our children in the discipline of the Lord means. Secondly, we're to instruct them. Discipline and instruction. What does instruction look like? <clears throat> yes, it is teaching your kids the valuable things, the things, again, that you are trying to make sure that are instilled in them for adult life. But there is a philosophy to teaching According to the Bible, when we look at discipleship, that is, is always modeling over lecturing. It is always living it out over telling someone how to live. If you go out in the foyer, we have a, a philosophy of discipleship for our church document. It's out there. We wrote it years ago. And if you go to Supercharge, our, our mentorship program, you, that's what we start with. We look at that. And it talks about what we think is essential according to what the Bible says to disciple another, even adult. And one of those things is this phrase right at the top. It says this, the desired outcomes, this is for discipleship, the de desired outcomes cannot merely be taught, they must be modeled. If you're going to teach something according to the Bible, you're going to live it in front of that person and then you're going to teach it. You cannot model what you don't know. So that means we're going to have to be studiers. If we believe the Bible is important, we're going to have to study the Bible, then we're going to have to live the Bible out for our kids. And you can't teach what you're not living. We call that hypocrisy. If you've ever tried to look at your kid and be like, do what I say, not what I do, that does not work. It does not work. And if there's anybody that knows if you're trying to fake it, it's your kids, because they are always watching. Oh, always. The best discipleship is lived. There's a really great book I, I would highly recommend if you're just looking for more ideas around family discipleship and teaching and instructing your kids. It's called Family Discipleship. It's by Adam Griffin and Matt Chandler. It talks about looking for uh, discipleship moments in your child's life. So you're, you're driving down the road and something happens and you have a moment where you can explain how that applies to the Bible or how that applies to life or where that teaching lesson is. And it's taking those moments. So, so yes, it's a great idea to have discipleship plans, to have devotional plans, to have time with your family. But man, do not allow those moments where you can speak truth into their life to pass by. Take those moments. Because, listen to me, it is not going to be a program a certain school, a certain youth group, a certain kids program that is going to disciple your kids. 
largely you are going to be exactly what your kids turn out to be. And, and I've had families that have left this church because they wanted some, they were like, oh, I've got to take my kid to this youth program over here. And, 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 and like that, that I just got to do it for my kids. And I'm like, they get your kid for 60 minutes a week, man. What? You think, that, you think that's going to have the big impact? You know what has the big impact on them? You loving Jesus in front of them. You passionately pursuing a life of discipleship around them that they see every single day. An hour a week? I, I mean, it might be a great program. It probably barely moves the needle compared to what you're doing at home. Amen. The best discipleship is lived out intimately. And, and, and the most intimate relationships are going to be the ones in your home. The relationship with your spouse and the relationship with your kids. Did you know I'm going to be so in- intimate? Because your kids are inescapable. Man, my kids, I can't get away. Like, you get to the bathroom and there's little fingers coming under the door trying to get you. Leave me alone. They're always there. But they see everything that you do and they know. You can say, you can have lots of nice churchy words for somebody on a Sunday about stuff, but your kids know. Your kids know. They know if you're faking it or not. You don't fake your kids out because they live with you. The best discipleship is lived out intimately. Listen, we say this about discipleship here in this church. The reason we're pushing all the time for you to get into a community group, for you to get into accountability, for you to get with a group of men or a group of women and, and do discipleship or go to coffee or pray together. The reason we're pushing on potlucks, on getting into mentorship and to get into these things, why? Because we know that if you'll get with other people, intimately and frequently enough for them to know what's going on in your life and to know what's going well and to know what's not going well, that you have a potential to really grow. It's the, it's the struggle with online church. You can, you can watch worship and participate in it and watch a message from home on your couch, but I, we're trying to push you, encourage you into intimate discipleship with other Christians because it matters. It matters in your home. So listen to the Bible's order of how this works. It's going to start with you, and then it's going to flow down to your children. It's in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. It says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. That's, that's the great commandment. This is the big commandment, right? Well, the reason you breathe air on earth is to glorify God. The only reason you exist today is to glorify God. The only reason you're here now and that God even knit you together in your mother's womb is so that you could love God, serve God, glorify God, and enjoy him forever. This is why you're here. This is the purpose of life. If you have any other purpose to life, you've mixed it up, you're off priority, this isn't what the Bible says. Your job is to love God with your heart, soul, and might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You don't get to teach them before they're on your heart. You don't get to teach your children and raise them up in the ways of the Lord if you don't love God with your heart and soul and might. So you love God, then you diligently teach to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You love God with everything you got. You, just, you, you dedicate your life to figuring out how to pursue God and live that out. And as you do that around your children, you teach those things to them that you're doing so they see it in practice, not just in word. We've studied why so many people left the church over the course of the last 30 years. And the number one reason that young adults, when they hit 17, 18, 19 years old, when they got out from underneath their parents' house, all left the church, is they told us the religion that they said they believed they didn't live out at home. I know what they said they believed, and then I saw them at home. So I left the church, because if it wasn't real enough to change them at home, why would it be real enough for me to put my faith in? If it didn't change mom and dad in the way they lived, why would it be something that's worthy of my faith? You love God with everything you are. You learn from the Bible. You try to live it out, and you teach it with such passion that it dominates your life. 
What, what are you trying to make? Are you trying to make people that love Jesus? Are you trying to make people that love volleyball? You laugh, but how many people are like, man, I don't go to church. So my kids got club volleyball. We've been doing it for eight years. By the way, they're four foot nine. But I'm sure they're going to go pro any day now. My philosophy is I want my kids to go pro in loving Jesus. Because I don't know where the rest of life is going to lead them, but that's the part that's going to matter. So far, we've covered that parenting is significant statistically, practically, and biblically. We've covered that children are commanded to obey and honor their parents. We've covered that you're not to provoke your children to anger with unreasonableness, fault-finding, neglect, or inconsistency. And we've talked to what the Bible has to say about discipline, how it is loving, and instruction, which requires modeling and living out this faith in front of them. Now, here is, here is I think, the problem with all of those wonderful things. And it's this, even though all that is absolutely accurate, it is exactly what the Bible says. When I think about that and I think, and and I'm, I'm laying awake sometimes at night worrying about my kids, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking this, all of that standard of that lofty standard and responsibility of parenting my kids just makes me think about all of my failures and my weaknesses. Like, are my kids doomed to make all of the same mistakes that I'm making? Will they be as weak as I am? Will they only be able to rise to the level of self-discipline that I have? There's a a super famous book by John Maxwell. It's called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And one of those laws is the law of the lid. And what the law of the lid says is an organization will only grow as high as the competency of its top leader. So if your leader's an eight, your organization can only grow to an eight. If your leader's a three, your organization's only going to grow to a three. Well, what that means to me when I read that is like, oh my gosh, are my my kids stuck at my leadership level? Because if I'm just being blunt, it and I'm inconsistent, and I fail, and I'm messy. I'm a, in fact, I, I named this message, help. I am a hot mess as a parent. <laughs> Are my kids doomed to only be able to succeed the way I am? Can they? I think about this when it comes to leading the church as a leader. Can, can this church only rise to the level of pursuing Jesus at the level that I pursued Jesus? Because, man, I feel like I fail at pursuing Jesus a lot. Can, can this church only become as expectant to see the power of God move as I'm expectant? Because I feel like there's just days where I, 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 I'm not. I don't think God's going to move at all. Is this church only going to take prayer as seriously as I take it? Because I just feel like there's times where I don't take prayer very seriously and I don't, I don't even put any faith really in the power of prayer. Can this church only see the value in evangelism as much as I personally see evangelism? Because I feel like I go a whole week and forget to actually talk about the gospel with someone. Will this church only value pursuing holiness in God as much as I will value pursuing holiness in God? Because, man, I'm just an utter wreck some days and I don't feel like I deserve any of this. If, if modeling is the primary mechanism of discipleship, then all I really feel is a lot of fear about my own weaknesses and my own failures. And, and, and the problem is if we stop the sermon right here, you'd have this very biblical list of, 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 of morals and, and, and responsibilities and, and things that we're all supposed to do in order to raise our kids. And that's great. But honestly, I, if I'm being honest, I just go, well, then I'm another failure. Maybe you're really self-disciplined. Maybe you're really holy. But I just feel like I'm a hot mess. Because I have a realization, man, I fall short of the mark daily. That's why the gospel is good news. Is when Jesus saved me, he told me to bring all of my weaknesses and all of my failures, not just the current ones that I had then, but all of the past, present, and future weaknesses and failures to him. He said, bring your, your pitiful best effort to me and just throw them on my feet and that he would supply the power. 
When Jesus is talking directly to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says to him, this is Paul that wrote this standard of morality and for us to, to pair it by. He said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's why it's good news is that, that I don't have to reach some level of righteousness like Jesus reached in order for my kids to make it because what Jesus says is I already made it. And I supply the power, and I supply the righteousness. It's just the key to understanding a gospel-led life is understanding that you're never going to be perfect. I am never going to be perfect. And yet God invites me to walk with him anyways in my weakness. As a a leader in this church, what that means practically is that it's not going to be very often that I'm going to talk about successes or competencies or even the authority as an elder. And Paul doesn't talk about that very often at all. Instead, he boasts about his weaknesses so that the power of Christ would be something that you could tangibly lean into. He pointed everyone to the goodness of Jesus in the midst of his weaknesses. So so to lead you well, I'm going to talk a lot more about my failures and my anxieties and my fears and my problems and my screw-ups. I heard someone uh, this past week tell someone else, someone that's not in our church anymore, say, man, I don't think that leadership even knows what they're doing. They're just trying to figure it out. He is so right. I just want to know where Jesus is moving and where he's leading and where he wants us to go. And and I'm not going to pretend like there's some point where I have achieved righteousness and I've made it to the moral standard and now we're good and I don't need you. Like, I want to desperately be dependent on the, the move of Christ and the power of Christ and where the Holy Spirit is leading because everything else is death. Everything else will be based on my competencies. And y'all, you don't want a church led by my competencies. You want a church that's led by the power of the Spirit. As a parent, I'm going to fail a lot, and I'm going to mess up, and I'm going to do the very things that I tell my kids not to do. And there'll be times going to be way too casual about my pursuit of Jesus and lukewarm in my passion and inconsistent in my discipleship. And if raising godly kids were completely up to my performance, then, man, they are in real trouble. The good news is that it's not. The good news is that as I strive toward that goal, as I try to work hard, I'm going to be really honest with my kids that I mess up a lot. And I throw myself on the power and the mercy of God every day. That is just central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Me being all things through Jesus Christ, being able to do all things through Jesus Christ, it's not about financial blessings, it's about suffering well and God being glorified in my failures as he handles the situations, oftentimes in spite of me. That's the good news. You're going to mess up. God knew it was coming. He died for you because of it, and he loves you anyways. And I want my kids to know that, because if there's one skill that they have to understand to be adults who love Jesus, it's the idea that they're never going to get it right on their own, and they've got to be completely dependent on him. There's this awesome verse, a set of verses. I'm going to read it as a benediction at the end here. Uh, in Psalm 127, that talks about kids being this, um, not just this gift from the Lord, but uh, it actually uses this really interesting illustration. It says kids are like arrows, which I've never heard. Maybe it means that they cause death. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but before it starts talking about how, how uh, kids are arrows in a quiver for an archer, It talks all about the anxiety of trying to do something that the Lord is not in. It talks about trying to to accomplish something that God's not doing. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it in in labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What are they saying? If you're trying to do something apart from the power and spirit of God, it's vanity, it's useless, it's hopeless. You should be hopeless. And then it changes from all this stuff about the Lord's got to be in it and you shouldn't be anxious if God's in it anyways because he's got it, you don't. And then it changes to behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Why are we talking about hopelessness in kids? You're like, I've got an answer. 
Why are we talking about hopelessness and, and, and kids? Because God's saying, listen, in all of your endeavors, if they're not dependent on me, they're hopeless and vain. And that includes parenting. That includes raising children. And then it's going to go on to say that kids are like arrows in the hands of an archer. Now, why arrows in the hands of an archer? Here's why. Here's why. I want you to hear this. It's absolutely beautiful. This is in Psalm 127. An arrow in the hands of an archer. You only actually get to influence that arrow in the beginning. You care for that arrow. You make sure it's in good condition. You, you, you store it so that it's dry. You keep the, 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 the fletchings clean. You keep the arrow sharp. You, you keep it away from the weather. But, but really, all of your work on the arrow is in two areas. You get to choose the direction of the arrow and the momentum that you're going to give it. And once you release it, you no longer have control. You have to have something else that is influencing that arrow once you let it go. And that's what parenting is. You choose the direction your children are going to go based on how you raise them and the momentum that you give them based on how well you model pursuing Jesus in front of them. And those are the two things you parents get to do. And after that, the arrow's in flight and it's up to God. And, and really at that point, we have faith that God will do what he said he's going to do. And that's good news because we have a God that is sovereign over everything. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, read this benediction over us from Psalm 127. If you'd like to come up today as our prayer team and our elders are here, um, you can come up if you want prayer for your family. You can come up if, if you don't know the Jesus that we're talking about when we talk about the gospel being good news, that you get to just bring all of your mess to Jesus and he puts his arms around you anyways, we would love to talk to you about what that is and what it looks like to follow Jesus. If you want to come up to the altar to just pray over your family or pray over uh, family members, by all means, please do that. Let me, let me read this and then uh, we'll move on with our service. Psalm 127, one through five. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toils, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I love you. I want you to know that God loves you. He loves your children. He loves you. He is a good God who does what he says he will do. And you can have faith that that God not only cares about you today, but cares about the future of your children. Even if you feel like me, that you are a hot mess most of the time. We love you. You move as the Lord leads you.